morning, everyone. It is great to be with you again this morning. Uh, Today we're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So you guys can go ahead and flip there. It's towards the middle of the New Testament, if you're not familiar with the Bible very much. Uh, Yeah, I'd love for you guys to have that in front of you as we work through it today. Uh, While you're flipping or scrolling there, uh, on the off chance that you don't know me, my name is Zach Brashears. Uh, My wife Jenna and I have been members at Manhattan Press for about two years, almost. Uh, I am a full-time campus missionary with crew at K-State, McPherson, and then also Wichita as well. Uh, Yeah, one of my great loves is getting to know people. So uh, if I happen to not know you and you've seen my face around, I'd love to get to know you after the service. I have been given the great honor of bringing God's word to you all today, uh, and my prayer is that it blesses the life of our church. So let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please follow along with me as I read. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. O God, of our, fa- of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would you give us your spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of yourself. Open and enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your power and might, the beauty of you who is raised above all things, now and to come. Amen. Well, one thing a lot of folks don't know about me is that I actually really love to bird watch. Um, I know I was talking to Rob the other day who was very surprised that I liked Chiefs football. I also really like bird watching. Um, I honestly don't do it enough. It's something I truly love doing. Uh, I love just being able to go on walks and to go uh, just kind of identify birds around me. Um, yeah, it's something that my wife and my friends have encouraged, so I've slowly accumulated uh, bird-watching books for the state of Kansas. I even have a set of flashcards to help me identify the birds and to learn them better. Uh, one of the things that really surprised me about uh, kind of starting bird-watching is how many different kinds of birds that I see every single day all around me uh, that I never kind of registered as unique or interesting. Uh, But as I started reading books about birds and I studied my flashcards, I slowly started being amazed at the birds that I could see every day all around me. Another thing I quickly realized is that it is very difficult as a beginning bird watcher to identify birds in the split second you get to see them, or maybe even the couple minutes that you get uh, to stare at them. There are so many different ways to identify birds. Uh, There's so many different overlapping similarities between them as well. Uh, that if you are not careful, you can easily misidentify a bird or not understand what's really in front of you. I almost always, even today, still have to have a birding book in front of me in order to identify a bird that I see. There were many times in my birding career, especially earlier on, uh, when I had a remarkably unique or interesting bird in front of me, but because of my lack of knowledge or my hurry to get somewhere else, I didn't realize what I was actually looking at. I took for granted the beautiful and unique opportunity I got. 
as I've grown in, in my ability to bird watch slowly, I found that birds that I used to see every day, every once in a while, and right off are actually quite rare, quite beautiful. I now find great joy in seeing a pleated woodpecker or a scissor-tailed flycatcher. When I started to understand what I had in front of me and sometimes all around me, it increased my delight and in my thankfulness in moments like that, that I would have written off years ago. Let me pitch you something. I think Ephesians is similar to a bird-watching book. God, through his word, opens our eyes to the beauty, the grace, the glory, and the hope of what we as Christians possess in Christ and directs us how we should live our lives in light of that reality. You see, Ephesians was originally a letter uh, written to a church in Ephesus, which is now in modern-day Turkey, by the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries of all time, a former persecutor of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul, as we will see, is riding from a prison in Rome, where he's been for about two years because he preached about Jesus. He writes to this church to remind them of what they possess because of their faith in Christ. He does this because the Ephesian church has two different competing cultures and ethnicities dwelling within it, Jews and Gentiles. And they have a tendency to want to split apart, to think that they're better on the other side, right? In other words, they're forgetful of what brings them together as the church. They often forget that they're actually called to oneness, to be with one another, and what that oneness looks like and why they should continue to pursue it. I think it might be the same for us today. And this is where we pick up in our passage. One more thing I'd like to add is for those who are maybe not sold out on Jesus in here, uh, maybe you would not profess to have faith in Christ, uh, the people that aren't fully convinced about him and maybe your friend dragged you along, I'll be mostly speaking to people here today who are sold out on Christ, who put their faith and trust in him. But I would love for you to compare the community that you see here in this passage and around you to maybe some other communities around you that are not Christian. Are these ideas attractive to you? Why or why not? Why don't our communities look like this at times? What I ask is that you keep an open and curious mind to explore, to doubt, and to ask questions. So let's dig in. Let's start in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Where we entered the book of Ephesians is very important. We are at the juncture of the whole letter, the binding of the book, so to speak, that holds two parts of the letter together. For the last three chapters, Paul has talked extensively about how amazing and beautiful the salvation that we have in Christ is the excellencies of our God, the mystery of his plan, and the power of his purposes. Now Paul turning, uh, now turns this for what this means for the church. For Paul, theology, the study of our God, specifically the way that he has worked in the gospel through his three persons, is not just knowledge to be had. No, he actually expects the church uh, to uh, understand that theology means action that it actually results in life change. So he starts with, therefore. In light of their growing knowledge of God, this is what should now result. He then moves on to saying, a prisoner for the Lord. He's quick to mention his position as a prisoner. And this is interesting because he's actually already told the Ephesians that he's a prisoner in chapter three. 
why say it again? Before Paul tells them what he thinks they should be living like and what God is calling them to, he wants to remind them where he is. He is not calling them to oneness and unity from some cushy place in Jerusalem. He wants to remind the Ephesians that he has skin in the game. There's no ulterior motives here. He benefits nothing from himself or himself by calling them to oneness. Actually, quite the opposite. He's giving up his life that, by calling them to oneness. We show what we're sold out for by, willing, by what we're willing to suffer for, and Paul is no different. He says so himself in chapter 3, verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. So he seeks the benefit of the church. He suffers for them, but not only for them, but ultimately for the Lord. This call that he gives the church, and for us as the church today, is amplified when we understand that in less than five years, Paul will be executed for his preaching of the gospel. This is convincing to us. Think about how the civil rights movement in the 60s changed it was primarily by African Americans who were open to willing, uh, open and willing to suffer uh, what they must in order for action to take place. They learned this from Paul and ultimately from Jesus. And so he goes on. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul uses every bit of rapport that he has, even the virtue of his own position as prisoner in Rome, to urge the church to walk according to their calling, to walk even though they are two very different cultures and ethnicities as one. This word for urge is a powerful one. It's sometimes translated exhort. With every bit of might and authority he has, even his willingness to suffer, he is urging, even begging the church that they would live or walk worthily of the, in light of their calling. So we must ask, what is this calling to which they have been called? Why is he so adamant that they live according, accordingly to one another with this call? Well, we find this laid out in chapters 1 through 3, and in summary, it is this. God, before the beginning of time, chose the church to be in Christ Jesus. God chose us that we might be welcomed into the family of God by adoption before we even had the opportunity to do anything for him. Not by virtue of our ethnicity, culture, or anything, simply by his free grace. Not only that, but this adoption also implies that the church has an inheritance, a hope. Our hope is that someday Christ will restore all things, that he will make all things new, and that we will spend eternity in fellowship with God and with each other in delight. We're even told that the Holy Spirit seals this for us, promises that it might never be taken from us, no matter what our failures or trials might be. Even as we all, as the church, are born into sin, we ourselves, when away from Christ, were selfish. We were greedy. We were self-serving. We worshipped comfort and committed evils against each other to benefit ourselves. We lived without any unity, going our own way, and even destroying our communities. When we, even despite all God had done for us in Christ, committed adultery against him by following other gods, even then, God so loved us that he traded his life for ours. He died instead of us. He defeated death and reconciled our relationship to God that was broken by our sin by his death on the cross. 
In doing so, he was then raised from the dead, and we also were raised with him if our faith is in Christ. Now what happens to Christ happens to us. We are now able to put our faith in God. We obey him freely, freely able to love him as we should. We are freed by God's work through Christ, through the power of the Spirit, to put our faith in God and thus be adopted and in union with God. He even allows us to sit in the heavenly places with us, showing us every manner of grace and kindness that we might rejoice and delight and glorify him. Paul then teases in chapters 1 through 3 what this calling actually entails for us as the church. In chapter 2, we're told the Gentiles, any of those who were not of any kind of Jewish ethnicity or descent, who did not have access to God before Christ, uh, God of the Bible before Christ, now have access to God through faith in Jesus. And Paul tells us this actually is no different than the way that the Jews come uh, to have access to God. Uh, They had special access to God throughout the Old Testament, uh, and they had access by hoping in a Messiah to come. Now that they have the fullness of that access through Jesus, the one whom they longed for for so long, not by anything they had done, not by any virtue of, the, of being born into the nature, nation of Israel, only by Christ. So the calling is the same for both Jews and Gentiles. They access God and his inheritance in the exact same way. So this new people, this new nation out of two, is a foreshadow, a teaser trailer for when Christ returns to restore all things new. Mysteriously, this nation needs no temple, needs no place to worship and have access to God. They themselves are the temple of God, as the prophets foretold. And as they come together, as we come together, they become the place where people come to see God to experience what the future new creation is going to look like. And this is so that all people could gather and be in awe and worship and glorify God for all he has done. Notice that we have been called, right? We did not call ourselves, whether Jew or Gentile, or even work for our position. It was graciously given to us, not by our cultures, our personalities, or preferences, or nationalities, or political parties, or ethnicities. This is a great and glorious calling, one that we can and should mine the riches of for the rest of our lives. So it's okay if we're still coming to understand some of these things. As we come to our passage today, we find that the word of God here tells us that we should act in accordance. We should act worthy of this great and glorious calling that he has called the Amazing Blessed Church. In Wichita, where I'm from, uh, it's well known that the famed Star Wars and Indiana Jones actor uh, Harrison Ford sometimes will spend time in our town. Uh, If you're from Wichita, you've probably heard a story about Harrison Ford eating dinner at the Carlos O'Kelly's by the airport. Uh, It's also well known that he's a fairly private person. Uh, He doesn't usually enjoy people walking up to his table and and trying to get a picture and autograph. Uh, It's actually like a big deal in Wichita, especially for like Star Wars and Indiana Jones fans. So I'd like you to take a second and imagine with me that you are in the Carlos O'Kelly's by the airport in Wichita. You see Harrison Ford there. You're a huge Indiana Jones fan. And you see he's motioning to you. He wants you to come and eat with him. A wondrous surprise, gracious and mysterious. The question becomes, how would you act after he had done this for you? Would you treat him like your buddy Jeff, 
No, you would not. You would act accordingly of the grace that Harrison Ford has given you in being able to eat with him. You would not order nachos and eat sloppily as he tells you tales of his famed acting career, right? No, you would act in accordance with the person and with the grace you were given in that moment. You would beam full of thankfulness. You would act much, much differently. The only reason you wouldn't would be if you didn't fully understand who Harrison Ford was. It's similar to our calling with God. God, a much greater figure than Harrison Ford, calls us to magnificent things. And as a result, we should walk or we should live worthy of that call. We walk worthily, differently, as we understand what has been done for us and who has called us. As we understand what has been done for us, we also understand each other as Christians. We should treat all of our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same attention, love, and reverence as a Harrison Ford fan would treat him at Carlos O'Kelly's by the airport in Wichita. We are united with our brothers and sisters in a shared experience of inordinate mercy. If we find that we struggle to walk in unity and oneness with each other, in love of the body of Christ, we may need to ask ourselves, do we fully understand our calling? If that is you, I want to invite you to read Ephesians 1 through 3 a lot and slowly, praying that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to what God has called you to in Christ. Ultimately, Paul is speaking to the church, look at your greatness of the call that you've been given, the grace, the hope, the glory that's been shown to you. That should change you fundamentally, specifically the way that you interact with one another. If it does not, you do not understand your calling as you should. So we're shown what we're called to do, to walk as one. Uh, He starts going on and shows us how we are to walk as one in verses two through three. He begins with verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. As uh, we as the church grow in our understanding and our delight of our calling, we are told what the fruit is supposed to look like. Just as the tree in Psalm 1 plants itself by the stream and grows to produce fruit, so we as the church are planted in the love of God in Christ. If we are planted there, we will produce this fruit. Here is the example of one who is walking according to the calling to which they've been called and how they treat others in the church. We're first told that they are humble and gentle. Paul, again, writing to a church in a similar situation in Philippians 2, says this, Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility entails counting those around us sitting next to you, standing across from you during the Lord's Supper as more significant than yourselves, putting their needs before your own. If we are walking worthy of the calling to oneness, we are willing to serve our fellow believer even if it costs us, which is humility, even if we have to suffer for it, right? We suffer for what we're sold out for. We see that they are also gentle, And this is significant because this is actually the term that Jesus uses to describe himself in Matthew 11. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are we, as Manhattan Prez, as a community, are we characterized with, for, uh, as, by gentleness with one another? And I, I kind of have a soapbox here for a second. I actually think gentleness is probably one of the most neglected attributes of the people of God, right? We are really good at coming up with excuses why not to be gentle. We are really good at finding reasons to use tough love, which, don't get me wrong, is definitely necessary and definitely has a place. But are we too quick to be harsh with one another? I genuinely think so. My guess is that I think many of us are uh, scared of gentleness and meekness. We kind of see it as a sign of weakness, a character flaw to be corrected and turned into a brash type of assertiveness. But that is not what scripture calls us to. We are called to actually let others have their way sometimes. To be okay with not being the most assertive or maybe theologically aggressive person in our small group. Again, we need our strong-willed brothers and sisters in Christ. If not, we would struggle as the body coming from one that is not strong-willed. But those brothers and sisters should strive to harness that power in gentleness and in meekness. Instead of finding reasons to use a heavy hand with each other, let us evermore find reasons to be gentle and meek with one another. Let us be quick to listen and slow to anger, and it will enrich the church of the future. He goes on, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We come to a key point in talking about oneness in the church here. One that I personally think uh, Paul is showing how down to earth he truly is and how understanding our God truly is. We're told to be patient or to use the old word long suffering. Patient in doing what? In bearing with one another. I don't think the English words kind of fully grasp the connotation of this, uh, of what's being said, but basically what we're told is to endure with one another, to patiently tolerate one another. God knows those whom he called are going to be very, very different than one another. In fact, he desires this. He deeply values and desires diversity in gifts, personalities, cultures, We even see this later in chapters, uh, in verses 7 through 16. Part of what makes the body a body is that it has different and diverse parts. God also knows that this means that we're not always going to get along with each other. Jews and Gentiles are some of the most different and foreign to one another people groups that could have been possible in that time. But part of the testimony to the world and to the gospel was that these two very different groups could get along with one another. In a day when religion was determined by your ethnicity and by which culture you grew up in, if you're a Gentile, you're a pagan. If you are a Jew, then you follow Yahweh. It was absolutely unheard of that two ethnicities could come together with one religion. And this is a testimony to the truth of the gospel. Jews were even banned from going inside Gentile homes, and yet they were able to come together as one church. Not easily. It was much, much work. It was painful. It was hard. It took a lot of time. The letter of Galatians is a perfect example of this. It is not comfortable. It took failure and long conversations and probably a lot of conflict management. For us today, there might be some people at Manhattan Prez, that for whatever reason you cannot stand. 
Maybe they talk too loud or what they wear is a little too odd or maybe they look different than you or maybe they have a different skin color than you. Maybe they have a different culture than you or maybe they don't understand, they don't understand how you think they should act during a worship service. Maybe their kids are too wild for you. Maybe they have kids. Maybe their kids aren't there. For whatever reason, there might be some people that you just have trouble getting along with. Who is that person or couple here that you would avoid at all costs during the passing of the peace? Who is that person that you hope someone else greets them when they're alone so that you don't have to? Who is that person that you find yourself getting easily frustrated with? We are called as the body of Christ to patiently endure and bear with one another because of our most holy and life-changing calling. If this calling is as meaningful to us as we claim it to be, if it takes the center stage and gives us meaning in a dizzyingly meaningless and mysterious world around us, this should be something that we constantly strive to do. Patiently also entails that we do this long term. We continue to do this with people that we just simply do not understand because God promises that eventually it's going to turn into something good and beautiful. It will not be comfortable. It will be hard, which is why we're told to endure, not happily skip along. But it's worth it in the end. In the end, we work together to dwell in harmony. And we become more and more of a community that looks as it was created to look. As the passage goes on, we see one of the secrets to having oneness and patience with one another, enduring with one another, and that's in love. Love is what motivates our patience and endurance with one another. We must pray and live out this love for one another. As we were loved by God, so we are to love one another. Even those among us that are difficult, if God could willingly unite himself with a people broken by sin, as difficult as you could possibly imagine, he could do that and identify with them, care for them. Surely, we who have received that can do the same for the difficult among us. Verse three continues on. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we should patiently endure with one another eagerly. Uh, the word is actually an ing word, other, otherwise known as a participle, or uh, it's stressing continual action. So basically, we're told to continue eagering, zealousing, continually and constantly seeking to maintain unity with one another. Uh, look at the word maintain. This is a point that I want to emphasize. We already have unity through the Spirit at work binding the church together. It's not something that we need to manufacture or create or even have lost and need to regain. I think there's this kind of semi-common notion of looking back at like the unity in the church uh, in Acts with some kind of longing nostalgia, uh, like somehow the church now is some JV version of what it used to be back in the day lacking the same power and unity. Of course, we should always look back to the church in Acts and, and use it as an exemplar because it was unique and amazing in many ways. We should long even for better things for the church today. But we are members of the same church they were back then. We have the same spirit, the same God, and the same grace, and our God does not change. The great pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this in reference to maintaining or keeping unity. 
because they are in this body, the church, they are one with all others who believe the same message. And the exhortation is that they should keep or preserve this unity. The unity itself is inevitable among all those who have been quickened or made alive by the Holy Spirit out of spiritual death and given new life in Christ Jesus. What they have to be careful about is that they don't allow anything to disrupt it or in any way interfere with it. Just like with bird watching, the more that I knew about birds, the reality that I had in front of me, the more I delighted in it. I longed to show others it. The more I wanted to sing praises to a God who made that reality happen for me. For us today, we must continually recognize the reality that we have unity through the Spirit. We gain access through the Father, to the Father, every one of us, through one Spirit. We must rejoice and long to live worthy of this unity that has been granted to us. The Spirit binds us together. In John 17, Jesus prays to the church, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus longs that we might work together, be connected in such a way that we would resemble even the Trinity. Three and one, one yet diverse. He continues in verses four through six. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we're going to go through all the alls. Uh, We start to see here uh, why we should walk as one. The last section of our passage gives us a reason why, an argument for walking in oneness and unity with one another. I find that when things are really difficult, we almost need an argument to ourselves of why we should continue doing it. We kind of have to convince ourselves. And Paul is doing the same thing here. And the logic of the passage is pretty simple. Since we follow the same God, not different gods, just as one person has one body instead of multiple bodies, and just as a person has one spirit instead of multiple spirit, so Christ has one body. So he is one God, and so he has one spirit, not multiple. In the same way, we all, no matter our backgrounds, are called to the same call to the same hope and redemption. We are not called to different hopes or called in different ways. We have the same inheritance to look forward to, the same God's desire to be with and the same God to enjoy together. We will dwell with each other in new creation. Pastor Brian has told us this before. Look around. Many of the people that you see around you will be with you for all eternity. So you better work on your relationship now. These are brothers and sisters, people who have received the same mercies. We have the same Father. We've experienced the same new life in Christ. If this is as central to us as we claim it to be, that means that we're actually able to bear with and actually learn from and enjoy any believer at any time. We then see one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. When we see more of what we as believers share, it's motivating us and giving us a why we should be in oneness with one another. We are shown that we have the same Lord, which in this context is Jesus. He is the Lord of creation, the king of the appointed kingdom to come. 
Like stated before in Ephesians, we all, no matter what, are citizens of the same nation and the same kingdom, no matter our earthly nationality. I find that when I share a hometown uh, with somebody that I'm just meeting, uh, there's something that binds us together differently than anyone else. Uh, we can talk about street signs and how, to, how we say Arkansas River instead of Arkansas River. Uh, we can bond over those things because they're from Wichita, and I get Wichita. We should have the same with every other Christian, right? We have something that binds us together much deeper than a hometown. We then see one faith. We are told that why we are in unity and oneness is because we have one faith. What does this mean? Uh, well, this is the concrete, what they call the concrete version of faith, but meaning the doctrines and the belief systems handed down to us from the apostles. We share the same core, historic, and apostolic faith. I think the common question that arises here from many of us is, well, who do I classify as being a part of the faith of the church? Is there some kind of doctrinal line that, by which I can decide who I have to dwell in unity with? And trust me, I get that this is a valid question. I do think it's a valid question. I also think it can possibly come along with poor motivations. Uh, we can often sound like the lawyer in Luke 10 who reveals his heart by asking Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Or maybe better understood as, who exactly do I have to love like this? We dwell in unity with those who share the same core beliefs in the apostolic gospel of justifying faith in Christ. And I think it's best that we start small, right? Paul is talking to one local church, and I think it would be wise for us to do the same. Uh, if they profess faith in Christ and they are in our church, they are the folks that you were called to walk in unity with. We then see one baptism. We got to see one today. Um, this is pretty simple. Brian actually did a pretty good explanation of what baptism is, uh, but it's a sign of entry into the visible church. We're we were all baptized into Christ, baptized into one family, which is the church. And this gives us reason and motivation. Finally, we see one God. Ancient Jews, even up to Jews today, have a mantra, a key passage of Old Testament scripture that gives them direction and focus. It's a prayer, and it's also an affirmation of faith. It's commonly called the Shema, meaning hear, for the first word of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Sound familiar, right? Jesus himself quotes it as the greatest commandment alongside loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus sees these two things to be so intertwined that they are unable to be separated, bonded together, and so it is that we follow one God. We should love one another. These words united the often battle-hardened uh, Jewish folks, a united, a covenant community of faith that continues to this day. We as a church are the covenant community. We are the true children of Abraham through faith. We have a common spiritual lineage, stronger than any other physical lineage could produce. And this unites us. As we come to our final verse, we'll see this coming to fruition who is over all and through all and in all. Back in the Garden of Eden, God dwelt among mankind. It was perfect and in perfect harmony. 
But when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, mankind's relationship with God was fractured. Our sin made it impossible for us to dwell with God. So God made a way that he might dwell among his people, and that was through the tabernacle and eventually the temple. These were special, holy places where specific things had to be done by certain people to enter into the specialized presence of God. God desired to be among his people in a present and real way. When Jesus comes, he is called Emmanuel, God among us, God with us. Through his work, he abolishes the old temple and because of his perfect sacrifice, begins the process whereby God can once again dwell with his people. We as the church are now God's temple. Mysteriously, we are the place where God is worshipped and where God dwells in a unique way where he dwells in no other place. By the power of the Spirit and through the work of the Son. God now dwells over us as the church. He dwells through us as the church and he dwells in us by the, in, as the church by the presence of the Spirit. We are the new creation designed to be in harmony. We are one temple, not multiple. One place where God mysteriously makes his name known among the world. The person that you can't stand in our church or at your workplace who claims to be Christian has just as much of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and through them as you. This is humbling, and it also gives us greater respect and responsibility for one another. We cannot be one temple characterized by worship of multiple gods. So as we have seen, God calls us as the church to unity and oneness with one another. He desires that we grow in our understanding and our love of him and what he has done. And in turn, that we would grow in our love for one another as a body of Christ. We want to walk through our lives worthy of the great and meaningful calling and grace that we have been given. We also see what this fruit looks like. We are given an example of how we are to live in oneness with one another. This looks like humility and gentleness with one another. It looks like patiently tolerating one another. And all of this is bonded together by love. We should also learn to be eager, to be excited to maintain the unity of the Spirit given to us in the bond of peace. Meaning that Jesus bonded us together no matter how different, both with himself and with each other in peace. We are finally told the reasons why we are to walk in oneness. We are shown that we are joined to one body, not many, to one Spirit that belongs to the body. We share one hope, and most of all, we share one God and Father of all. And this God permeates throughout the whole household of God, which is his holy dwelling place, the temple. I want to be brief here, but there's some simple ways that we can live this out here at Manhattan Prez. Two things to begin with. Uh, One, engage the worship service while you're here. Find the new person in the passing of the peace. Find the person that no one talks to during the passing of the peace. Maybe even find the person that is difficult for you during the passing of the peace. Stick around, come and talk and share your life and ask good questions of one another. This is, uh, as Brian was sharing with uh, me the other day, this is the one place where being a Christian isn't weird. Embrace that. Involvement in church life in general is really huge here. Another thing I say is to grow in our appreciation of the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that we share 
together. We all equally receive the body and the blood of Christ. We look at each other in a big circle because we shouldn't do this sacrament alone. In that moment, we get a glimpse of new creation when we will eat real bread and drink real wine with our God and with each other. Jesus has made peace through the blood of the cross. Groups that would never be reconciled now can be reconciled through the cross. It belongs to not one ethnicity or gender, not one personality type or temperament. Jesus freely offers it by his grace to those who have ears to hear. If you have struggled thinking Christianity maybe isn't for you, it's for some other person, I can promise you it is. If this community sounds attractive or maybe too good to be true, it is. That's why we rejoice. This is what we are created for. Come and see. Let's pray. Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, according to the riches of your glory, would you strengthen our church with the power of your spirit, afresh and anew, that you may dwell in our hearts through faith, rooted and grounded in love, that we may comprehend with one another what is the magnitude of our love that Christ has shown us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.